Welcome to the Chainbridge Podcast. I'm Callum Nicholson. Today's guest is Heather McDonald. Educated at Yale and Cambridge, Heather is an essayist, lawyer, author, and a fellow of the Manhattan Institute. She's published a number of books, including The Burden of Bad Ideas, How Modern Intellectuals Misshape Our Society, The War on Cops, How the New Attack on Law and Order Makes Everyone Less Safe, and most recently, The Diversity Delusion, A Race and Gender Pandering, corrupt the university and undermine our culture. Welcome to the Chambridge Podcast, Heather. My pleasure, Colm. Thank you so much for having me on. So I want to start by talking about the diversity delusion, the issues around social justice and so on, and the issues around um, and the issues on campuses, I think, in the Anglosphere, uh, I think are quite well known to most people now. Everyone's been talking about the uh, woke issues and so on. So I would instead like to begin by asking you about something in the subtitle, and the subtitle of the book, of course, is How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. So what precisely do you mean when you talk about culture and what exactly do you see as being at risk? What's at risk is excellence. What's at risk is competent institutions, the ability to advance scientific knowledge, uh, and of course, the ability to appreciate our cultural heritage. Uh, the obsession with the trivialities of race and sex have not stayed put. They've entered every major tech company, every scientific lab, uh, every art museum, every orchestra, uh, law firms, corporations, you name it. Institution after institution is discarding meritocratic standards, the expectation of excellence, in order to engineer uh, racial and 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 gender proportionality. Uh, you know, we should not assume that we will be in the advance of techni technological innovation in the future if we continue to believe that the role of science is not to advance knowledge but to engage in some social justice enterprise by diverting vast amounts of resources into uh, community mentoring and lowering standards for admissions both to scientific faculties and universities and to private firms, lowering them in order to hire more minorities. The fact of the matter is, given the yawning academic achievement gap that separates blacks and Hispanics on the one hand and whites and Asians on the other, you can either have diversity or you can have meritocracy. You cannot have both. So this is very interesting because when you look at the social justice movements, uh, they're often presented as a, as a disease that's sweeping across society. Uh, but I often wonder if, if they are, in a sense, symptoms of a disease. Uh, and I'm wondering, I mean, the, if you look at these social justice ideas, they do have roots in 1960s, 70s, and 80s, post-structural, post-modernist thinking. But I don't get the impression many of the activists have read, or if they have read, not necessarily understood that sort of philosophy. In fact, the way a lot of it's played out with these grand generalizing claims is actually very antithetical to a lot of the ideas that were being put forward by Derrida, Foucault, and so on. And so I'm wondering, when you're looking at this issue, uh, what do you see as causing all this? What do you see as driving this? I mean, and and I suppose the context of my, my question here is, do you think it's really driven by how compelling the philosophy was? Or is it more to do with broader political economic factors and technological changes and, uh, and so on? I ask myself a lot what Paul DeMond would have made of this current moment, because the one 
advantage, and it should not get credit for this because it was simply an inheritance, but compared to the present moment, the one advantage or virtue of the original deconstructionists and post-structuralists were they were utterly indifferent to today's diversity categories. They read the canon. Derrida read Plato and Aristotle and Rousseau and Proust uh, without anybody even thinking to complain about race and sex. And there's an irony in the trajectory of intellectual history because the fundamental claim of deconstruction was that the self was a mere fiction of language. It was a rhetorical trope. That was the dominant thinking in the 70s. In the 80s, with the onset of multiculturalism, the self came roaring back with a vengeance. And all you ha have now is this narcissistic, solipsistic desire on the part of students to read things that confirm their own identity. Uh, and, and there's nothing more uh, exaggerated than the various gender identities that students are deviously and, and, and fanatically metastasizing uh, that, uh, that are all about studying one's own unique, uh, allegedly, gender qualities. Uh, so it's, it is a curious swerve from the origins. Nevertheless, I think in, in Derrida you can see some, some signs of rather conventional leftist politics. So my guess is that he was slippery enough that he would have uh, transformed himself into uh, a current day multiculturalist and identity politician. Now, as far as whether this current obsession with diversity, and I, you've, you rightly point out that the university has been well analyzed, but I can just tell you, just to restate, diversity is the function of universities today. It is all they talk about. They have massive bureaucracies dedicated to it. It's the one common enterprise. The search for knowledge is secondary. The respect for the past is secondary. The mindless repetition of diversity bromides is an endless daily thing. The challenge I have, I'm pretty confident in my explanations for what's driving the American obsession, but as you rightly point out, this is broader uh, and it's being picked up in societies without America's past. But I think in the United States, I see the problem of ongoing racial disparities as driving massive amounts of what's happening in our culture today. Uh, Americans are rightly, understandably guilty about the grotesque violation of our founding ideals, the hypocrisy that began from this nation's beginnings. I am sympathetic to blacks throughout our history, whether it was Frederick Douglass in 1854 or more recently Malcolm X, who would say, "What? why should we celebrate the 4th of July? We were excluded from that. So I don't think one can really overstate the sheer nastiness of, of the American treatment of blacks until quite recently. That having been said, I, I'm willing to concede that that is not the reality of America today. As as unlikely as it might have seemed in the 1960s, 1970s, we've done an, a complete about face. 
today there's not a single mainstream institution that is not twisting itself into knots to hire and promote as many blacks as possible to admit blacks into educational institutions with the use of massive and crippling uh, racial preferences. So we were racist, we are not racist today. Our reality today is black privilege, not white privilege. I think what's driving this is not some neoliberalism corporatist effort to preserve its the ongoing class structure and, and divert would-be radicals with little baubles of identity politics, which is a dominant theory today. I think it is all about the fact that after several decades, 50 or 60, of massive government intervention, transfer payments, social uplift programs, both public and private, the racial disparities, economic and social, have not closed. There's no question uh, blacks are overrepresented in the imprisoned population, and they are underrepresented in the most elite institutions. And I think the elites are terrified that that gap is not going to close, and so they are working out preemptively the only allowable explanation, which is systemic racism. It is utterly taboo in the academy and in public discourse to talk about the vast behavioral and academic gaps that are at play on a regular basis. I've, I've proposed a thought experiment. If blacks acted like Asians for 10 or 20 years in all things related to success in life, whether it's a fanatical attention to studying, to learning things in school, to paying attention to your teacher, to not fighting, to not beating up your teacher, uh, to not getting involved in gangs, not getting involved in drugs, both as a user and as a dealer, waiting till you're married to have children. If blacks acted like Asians, and whites should act like Asians too, because they are whooping everybody's ass in the United States at this point because of their just obsessive commitment to the, the bourgeois values that are the guarantee of success in American society. If blacks adopted those behaviors and we still saw the racial achievement gaps that we see today, then the explanation of systemic racism would be plausible. But given the empirically verifiable and observable extreme differences in culture, it is way premature to say that the only allowable explanation is systemic racism. So what we have in the diversity industry is just a ever more fruitful and sort of crazed generation of of different explanations looking at every possible thing that is allegedly holding blacks back, whether it's the history of Western art, the history of Western music, Western architecture, everything now is being felled with the phony accusation of racism and the claim that it is that, it is the tradition of Bach and Schubert and here in in, in Hungary of, of Bartok and Dognani, that's what's responsible rather than right now a pathological inner city culture. So it's uh, interesting with your book because the title is Diversity Delusions and you seem to be focusing very much on these, these delusions, these moral panics in a sense and the, the lack of utility and then the lack of truth, the lack of good judgment. And, uh, but you've also mentioned before about 
Well, in describing these delusions, they are ones that are obsessed, it seems, by, by categories. And in some ways, they almost seem like sort of OCD, an you know, obsessive compulsive need to categorize and to privilege the part over the whole, the letter of something over the spirit. I mean, so often I've noticed when you see critiques of someone for what they've said, a comedian, it's a very literal view of language. You know, it's stripped of intent and meaning and, and, and so on. And context, always stripped of context. Now, there's a, there's a writer who you may be familiar with called Ian McGilchrist, who's a psychologist, and he wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary. And what he argued was that you know, we have the two hemispheres of the brain, the left and the right, and people have had different theories as to what each one does. But his theory was that, uh, or his theory is, that uh, the left brain is really the part that zooms in on content, you know, what you're eating, whereas the right brain pays attention to the context, who wants to eat you, essentially. And that in a healthy society, he argues, you, uh, healthy societies or societies at their creative peak are often ones where both sides of the brain are being used, not just the detail-oriented sort of technocratic brain, but also the brain that, that is interested in values and culture and so on, essentially. And uh, But what he says is when societies collapse, it tends to be where we forget the importance of the right side of the brain of paying attention to the whole, and we get obsessed with the parts. And I'm wondering in the light of your book that is the pattern you're describing of these sort of technocratic, uh, uh, well, these categories and this very sort of HR-driven technocratic view of identity, for instance, uh, is this not a really a, a pattern that we see across the culture? Because if you look at the debate around climate, it's often a uh, discussion which uh, is, is absolutely focused on the climate issue, but not the trade-offs around social implications and so on. Exactly the same with COVID. We talk about the science of COVID, but not the proportionality of lockdown and how much that's determined by culturally subjective ideas of risk and value, what we value in our culture. And I'm wondering, do you see this, uh, as I think he would, as a, a broader pattern? And do you see it, if it is a broader pattern, do you see it as a sign of cultural decline in general? Um, beyond simply the uh, specific context of, say, race or gender, but across the, the, the way we are thinking in our society. Do you think there's a broader disease in how we're thinking as a society in general? I guess I've been so focused on combating the lies of the diversity industry and trying to put forth alternative explanations for racial disparities because as long as systemic racism remains the only allowable explanation for racial disparities, everything is coming down. I cannot stress enough to your listeners' column. There is not a single institution, however unrelated to racial issues, that is not going to be tarred with the false accusation of racism. So I've been focusing on that. I'm not agile enough right now to think about whether, in fact, this is merely a part of a larger whole. I tend to think things are what they are and take them at face value. I would certainly relate uh, the COVID response to an aspect of diversity, which is the feminization of our culture uh, and the female average risk aversion and inability or unwillingness to balance costs and benefits, to privilege a therapeutic approach to reality over a more rational one. And, and certainly what's some, one problem that's driving the universities with their also betrayal of the fundamental Anglo-American understanding of the preciousness of free speech 
the extraordinary defense, the irrefutable arguments that J.S. Mill made for open marketplace of ideas, it is overwhelmingly females on college campuses, whether in the student body or the uh, professoriate or certainly the bureaucracy, that are the biggest advocates of this ridiculous idea that, you know, talking accurately about sociological problems is a form of, quote, hate speech, and that hate speech may be legitimately and constitutionally banned. So that's an element of the kind of identification of our society that has played out in COVID response and possibly too, you're right, global warming. As far as right brain, left brain, that I think is a, a level of abstraction that I'm just not comfortable with going towards simply because I can see the roots of the racial discourse in our, our country as being very fact-specific. So we're obviously having this conversation in uh, Budapest here in Hungary, and, uh, and I'm a Brit, and I think you know the Hungarians, much like the Brits, we love American culture. Um, but I think in Hungary and in the UK, there's often a frustration of how pervasive American culture is in our culture now. Um, and I'm wondering that, you know, when you look at these social justice warriors, then activists, they are often talking about being anti-colonial. They are they seek to decolonize curriculums and so on. But I do sometimes feel that the export abroad of the norms and the verities and the moral panics and the and the management and HR theories of the US. Uh, because I think these culture wars are a very American phenomenon. The fixation on race obviously has a particular context, which is America's racial history and, and it's it's sort of uh, grappling with its history of slavery and so on. Um, but these things don't really apply, certainly don't apply in the Hungarian context in the same way. And even in the British context, they're very different. And I wonder um, that when you look at these uh, these um, social justice activists, for me, in some ways, they are they seem like the new imperialists because they are imposing their American culture onto us. And so I wonder, uh, would you agree with the idea that we in Europe perhaps need to actually decolonize our curriculums from American cultural imperialism? Absolutely. I mean, it's outrageous. It's absolutely outrageous. Fight this thing as if your life's depended on it, because if you don't, your past will be destroyed, your your heritage will be destroyed. It is utterly ludicrous. It is a phony ideology in its origins, and it is even more phony in its exported version. But yeah, I, I look with other dismay when I see uh, you know, David Hume being removed from the names of buildings in, in Scotland, or Oxford allegedly saying that we're not going to require the ability to read musical notation uh, in in music majors because it has a disparate impact. Again, the name of the game here is disparate impact. Any academic or behavioral standard in America has a disparate impact on blacks, and therefore, rather than trying to remove and improve the behaviors that generate those disparate impacts, we're just simply going to say we we get rid of the standards, and that's going on in the criminal law as well, where we have police chiefs, prosecutors, rapidly dismantling all law enforcement in order to avoid locking away black criminals. And the results are murder, mayhem, uh, mass looting, anarchy on the streets. Uh, so I don't know why the the infection of self-abnegation and, and phony self-accusation is so infectious, but it certainly is. And I think it is the current form of feeling righteous 
It gives its practitioners a immediate moral superiority over the alleged rabble, you know, so that appears to be very tempting. But there, there does seem to be, to the extent that this will spread, and it is happening in France, it is happening in Germany, Macron, to his credit, at least spoke against tearing down statues, whether he will follow through in that defense of French culture, I don't know. But there does seem to be something about European, white European culture at this point in time, uh, which is engaged in this just puzzling and unhistorical desire to self-annihilate. You write uh, quite a lot in your work about false narratives, particularly around race, and you condemn what you see as false accusations of systemic racism, in, for instance, in the, the American police. And, uh, and it's always seemed to me that there are two types of simplifications which can perhaps amount to racism. There's one that I more typically see on the political left, which is always to assume that a minority group are helpless, that is, they're always victims of others and structural factors. But then there is the sort of, you know, the prejudice, I think, on the right, which is that the assumption that people are always feckless, that they are always victims of themselves. And real life for me has always seemed to be more complex than either of these, these two narratives. And none of us, of course, exist in a vacuum uh, where character and will determines all, and, and equally, few of us are completely devoid of, of, uh, of some agency over our fate. So what, in your view, therefore, accounts for what is clearly a, a pattern of, of relative deprivation, as well as um, difficulties competing with other groups, say, among African Americans? Well, what do you think is the explanation? I mean, I imagine you'd agree with me that these two narratives, if it's always purely structural, it's purely just uh, you know, fecklessness in a sense. These, these are, these are uh, simplistic and, and as a consequence quite prejudiced narratives. What would you see as the, the explanation? Well, I'm, I, you know, I could possibly be faulted for stressing behavioral aspects, personal responsibility aspects too strongly and, uh, and, and things that in, an individual can do for himself to improve his chances in life. I am not going to deny that as in any society, uh, there are disparities of wealth, on average, you're probably better off uh, being born to wealthy parents than you are to poor parents, and that there are neighborhoods uh, without the same sorts of institutions. Nevertheless, I would say that you are the the real poverty is that of social capital. It is that of institutions of the family above all else in these neighborhoods, expectations of marriage that have an indirect effect of civilizing young boys, and that you'd be a lot better off being raised by two married parents with an income of $20,000 a year, and I can't do the math into forints or, or pounds, but uh, when the father works, than you would be to a single mother with an income of fifty dollars or $60,000 a year from transfer payments who is not working. So. I think that, and and parents that insist that you go to school, that you take your textbooks home, that you do your homework, that you stay away from street life, that I think is far more important than any income inequality. And, you know, we've, you've probably seen this in Britain, at least, the move from the hunger industry to food insecurity. That's the new thing. You, because nobody's hungry. I mean, America and Britain are fat. You know, they're obese. That's why they had high, higher rates of COVID is because we're eating ourselves to death. Nobody is going hungry in this society. I can tell you that these 
13, 14, 15-year-olds who are engaged in these barbaric drive-by shootings in inner cities, mowing down one-month-old, one-year-olds, nine-year-old children, all of them have smartphones. Social media is the police's best friend because all of these young teen thugs post videos of themselves showing off their guns, flaunting their cash. Uh, If you can afford a smartphone, you are not poor. Again, economic poverty is not the problem. Are there schools uh, as good? Well, we spend much more per capita per student on inner city schools than we do in suburban schools. The big problem there is there's not a culture of learning. Students are beating up on their teachers. So I'm, I'm just obviously conservatives, their policy wonks love policy. And so they would say, well, we need more vouchers, school vouchers, we need more charter schools. That would help, but we've been doing, trying that for a long time. Uh, I say it's time to try a very explicit discourse about personal responsibility and making those choices early on in life that will help you. Now, obviously, people screw up. And if you screw up and you come from a wealthy family, you're much more likely to have a safety net underneath you. But that makes it all the more urgent that the elites do not excuse or turn their eyes away from self-defeating culture and embrace the bourgeois values that in the 1960s went out of fashion, and the elites, as Myron Magnet wrote in The Dream of the Nightmare, toyed with drug use and pulling yourself out of the workforce, but they had the resources to right themselves. When the poor started adopting those anti-authority values, embracing a culture of opposition, that uh, really set them on a downward trajectory. You mentioned before about the, the words food and food insecure, uh, hunger and food insecurity. And uh, I, I actually have a, a question for you about the changes in the way we use language and, and the, the move to more anodyne, more technocratic language. And I have a very particular example that I've been thinking about for quite some time. I've never asked anyone about it who n- has thought a lot about this topic. So I'm very curious as to what you'd say. So one phrase that is almost synonymous with contemporary American social justice activism is the phrase, check your privilege. And this has always seemed quite odd to me because it seems to be pathologizing precisely the wrong thing. Because surely if, for instance, a white person can walk down the street without fear of being accosted by the police or something, uh, that surely isn't privilege. Surely that is what everyone ought to be able to experience. So it seems strange to me that we pathologize the um, the uh, freedom from uh, being uh, accosted, right, as something that people need to check. Now, what's particularly uh, strange about this is that we used to have a word that was far more analytically useful, which was the term underprivilege. And I think the reason to me this was more useful is that if you say a group is privileged, well, that's falsified by finding a single person in that group who isn't privileged. I'm from a, quite a poor region of the UK. There's a town called Whitehaven. You couldn't go there and not notice that the 99.9% white population has a high degree of underprivilege. Uh, the fact that they are white has absolutely no relevance in that community. Um, so not only can it be can you find exceptions to the notion that one group is privileged, but you also can find people in a so-called underprivileged group or non-privileged group who are privileged. I don't think anyone would look at, for instance, Barack Obama and say he is not now someone of privilege. And so I'm wondering, why has this term, why has there been a shift from seeing underprivileged as the problem to now seeing privilege as the problem? And indeed, what does that tell us? What does that shift uh, uh, tell us about the culture 
that has made and undergone this sort of shift in aspect. Do you think that's very telling? Yes, it would because again, the focus now is on the alleged oppressor group and less so on the alleged oppressed group. So we're all focusing on whites who are supposed to go through these ritual self-flagellations, self-abnegation, and uh, step aside, accept racial preferences that mean that if you have a white son, he's going to have to be three times as good to get into a highly selective school than a so-called underrepresented minority. Uh, and but we're trying to convince people that that is perfectly just and legitimate. So and and maybe it's an implicit recognition that by traditional standards, the the poor today are not poor. I I even in your hometown, I would say there yes there may have been a flight of work and industry and that's a real problem. But I would guess that those people there are not doing the optimum in order to advance themselves in life. I think there's a lot, Tony Daniels writes about this, you know, in the underclass that he saw in prisons, a uh, self-defeating attitude, a passivity, an embrace of victimization. So again, I, I just think we need to fight back hard and maybe we'll find a middle ground. But at this point, there's just zero emphasis in the cultural discourse on what people can do for themselves. And there's a, a welfare analyst at the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C., Robert Rector, who looks at the average consumption of people on welfare in the United States and what they own. You know, they're, they've all got air conditioning. They've all got cable TV. Uh, you know, at this point, they've all got probably wireless Internet connections. And so we keep upping the ante of what it means to be poor. Uh, and it is a relative term, obviously, but in absolute terms, it's, it's, it's pretty ludicrous today. And I would say, uh, the phrase I would say, substitute for white privilege is family privilege. That's the main source of privilege in our society today, if you're growing up in a stable two-parent home. The odds, as Barack Obama once acknowledged in a speech in 2008, when he was running for, for president the first time, he was quite honest. He gave a speech on Father's Day to the black community and calling on black fathers to show responsibility for their children. And he reeled off statistics that have been known for, for decades about the much, much higher chances that you'll end up in prison uh, as a single mother yourself, involved in drugs, mental problems, if you grow up with a single mother and and in a culture of single motherhood. Fascinating. The um, another question around uh, uh, another shift in the culture that obviously social justice activism and activists talk a lot about uh, racial identity as the key variable, the key determinant uh, determinant of socioeconomic mobility. But it seems to me that on uh, closer analysis, a lot of the problems we see diverge by what could still loosely be termed class. I mean, it tends to be sort of the underclass in, you know, fairly, under, you know, deprived parts of Chicago that have the problems, not not the the better parts of the city. So it's not purely a, um, there, there are some groups of a minority who are doing quite well, but, uh, and the same with the, with the white population, obviously, in England, the middle class are doing okay, but people from the area where, uh, you know, my family live are, uh, you know, that they are very deprived. And I'm wondering what happened 
to the concept of class as a framework for understanding our societal problems? And do you think it should be brought back? Well, first of all, is class the cause or is it the effect? Are you in the lower class because you know there's these economic forces or because you have not engaged in those bourgeois behaviors from a child forward that would allow you to lift yourself out of a, a poor situation in life. In the United States, there's a concept called the, the uh, success formula that has been recognized since William Galston, a Bill Clinton advisor in the 1990s, that shows that if you do three simple behaviors, you will have a 75% chance of being not poor and in the middle class and those behaviors are graduating from high school, not college, that is secondary school, not college, working full-time at any job, even a minimum wage job, and waiting till you're married to have children. So those are behaviors that are the drivers of class. And, and so to say, well, should we be talking about class? Not necessarily. I don't know what it gets you. I would say that I think economic analyses of a traditional Marxist analysis is in some ways more interesting than diversity because at least it's involved with what people do rather than what they are. So to look at you know railroad workers or agricultural workers, the owners of banks, the owners of railroads, that is is a more rich description of society than than talking about people in terms of of uh, the the trivialities of race and sex. It does seem that we're often getting away from uh, a lot of the deeper structural issues. And a lot of these, uh, well, when you talk in the book about the delusions, they do seem to be often uh, uh, you know, distractions as much as delusions, really, from some more fundamental things. I could just say, you know, what's interesting, there's a, a, a I don't know if we'd call himself a sociologist or econ economist, William Julius Wilson, in the United States, who explained uh, black lagging achievement with an economic explanation that jobs had moved away from black cities and that's what created the ghetto culture. Uh, and by and large, I don't think conservatives accepted that. They, they did have more of a cultural explanation for, for black poverty. It is, if I were inclined to see things through the uh, lens of race, I would note a certain irony that people like Fox News' anchor Tucker Carlson, who I respect enormously, uh, are now adopting that same economic analysis to explain the problems of white, lower-class America. Uh, and you could also point out that when the drug addiction problem in America, which is massive and uh, has no parallels I don't think in Europe, maybe somewhat in Britain, but even so, I doubt it. You know, when it was still the reign of of, of uh, crack, we were, I think, rightly tough on drug dealing. And now when it became the opioid crisis affecting whites, uh, the public discourse was much more likely to talk about treatment. So that may be something that would uh, give some support to a more left-wing analysis of, of self-interested racial politics. Uh, one final question, Heather. Um, so we were on a panel the other day, and you talked about the uh, sort of rampant adoption of, of sort of victim status among many of the social justice uh, uh, activists on the left. Um, but I want to play devil's advocate a little bit here, as I did then, which is that 
Uh, the left would, of course, argue that uh, conservatives, they, they often say it's the conservatives who are adopting a, a victim mentality um, when they talk, as you have, about you know, the right having lost all the battles of the American culture wars uh, for decades and the complaints about being cancelled and so on. Um, and I think it's, it's not that hard to see a, a strong streak of sort of victim status in certainly right-wing populist movements. I mean, in the Trump movement, there is a deep sense of grievance, this, uh, these arguments about the election being lost and being hard done by. And I think in Hungary, by their own admission, there's, there's a fine line in Hungary between national pride and, and wounded pride sometimes when they refer to the traumas of history, you know, 1241 and the Mongol invasion, 1527, the Ottoman invasion, 1920 in Trianon, 1949 in communism. Um, and it's a fine line in Hungary. And I've had discussions with uh, conservatives in Hungary about you know, what, what is saying never again and what is saying, uh, uh, what, what is adopting a, a victim mentality. And it's something they're negotiating here. And it's a difficult issue there as it is or here as it is in, in, say, the States. So what would be your response to the argument that conservatives are just as likely to play the victim as the progressive left? Well, uh, first of all, how do you then talk about facts if you do so, doing so means that you are playing the victim? Are you, does that mean you can't talk about facts of various books being canceled? If that is tantamount to being a victim, but then we just can't talk about those things, I would say what matters is, is it a fact or not? And I strongly believe that the election was not stolen. Uh, the difficulty of talking about that problem in the United States and, and even talking about the behavior of the nonviolent people in the Capitol on January 6th. 2021 is they think that they were upholding the rule of law. So, you know, the New York Times can wag, scold, scold those people all the time for engaging in insurrectionary behavior based on a lie, but they actually don't think it's a lie. So that that's an epistemological problem that nobody's really grappled with. But it is a fact that the big tech companies are not allowing dissenting views. So if to say that is to be a victim. I don't know how you how, how can you talk about it. I would say it is not a fact that there is systemic racism in the United States today. Anybody who has the remotest connection with the university knows that every single faculty search is one desperate effort to find remotely qualified minorities to hire. That is incommensurate with the idea that universities are systemically discriminating against minority applicants. To the contrary, there's a small uh, evangelical college in the Midwest that has stopped admitting white males to its graduate PhD programs because it doesn't want to lower its placement statistics for being able to place its PhD graduates in college teaching jobs because it knows that white male PhDs are utterly handicapped in the job market and they will not get jobs. So it would rather just say, we're not even going to take that risk and, and have a stellar placement record by admitting only females or, or underrepresented minorities. So those are facts. Uh, and I don't think that the claims made by the people promoting the concept of systemic racism are facts. I mean, I can you know, I, a whole other discussion would be the facts about policing and crime and, and police shootings. I've got the facts on my side. They do not. So I am simply, I don't go around saying, woe is me, I'm traumatized. Uh, I don't feel at all 
uh, weakened or, or under any kind of psychological assault, but it is a fact. Uh, the idiotic mob hysteria that greets me if I step foot on a college campus, I don't say that makes me a victim, I, but I have to be able to describe what's going on so that people understand, as you call it, the absolute moral panic that has taken over ignorant young people today. Heather McDonald, thank you very much for joining us here on the Chambridge podcast, and I hope you have a lovely time for the rest of your time here in Budapest. It's been a great conversation, Colm. Thank you so much for having me.